0: They're really important to ask and answer. We're going to look at one of those today, but in case you're wondering what the three big questions of life are, we'll be addressing number one when we come to Genesis. You know what number one is? Where did you come from? Number two, why are you here? Genesis helps us with that one as well. But the last book in your Bible helps us to answer the third big question of life is where are you going? You are going somewhere. The good news is, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, then the Bible says you are looking forward to a better life to come. This is not your best life now. Uh, You're on your way to heaven. But heaven is a bit of a mysterious word. In fact, if you have a little uh, think about that word, all the various synonyms that might go with it, there are words such as beauty, comfort, peace, satisfaction, and contentment. Those are helpful. The adjective form is often used to describe something wonderful. You might even use it in reference to lunch today. Some some aspect of your lunch today is heavenly. Or you might be driving around looking at beautiful scenery and say, wow, the scenery is heavenly. Uh, And I I understand uh, there's a wonderful ice cream. It tastes very good. It's called heavenly hash but heaven is far more than just an adjective or a describing word it's more than an attitude that you might have we need to understand we need to get our we need to get our heads and our hearts out of this temporary place that we currently live and recognize that heaven is a real place and it's a it's a place where the people of god go when they die and it is the the place where all christians have their citizenship You are a citizen of heaven. Well, because human nature is so tainted, so corrupted by the effects of sin, sometimes, uh, well, people just left to their own instincts will even corrupt spiritual truth. And unfortunately, the doctrine of heaven is yet again one of those things that gets corrupted. If you lack a biblical perspective when it comes to thinking about your eternal home, we call heaven you can come to various wrong ideas wrong perspectives so people who lack a biblical perspective therefore are going to think wrongly about heavenly things Uh, either they can ignore the spiritual realm altogether and we just don't think about the spiritual realm Uh, sometimes people choose instead to, to just live for the the temporal world that we're in right now so they're not doing what Colossians says, set your affection on things above. Or sometimes people get so absorbed in the fantasy world, and uh, the spiritual world, and the truth of it is forfeited and not taken seriously, and certainly not seriously enough. But as we look at Revelation here today, here's my proposition. I'm, I'm proposing this for you to think about from this text, that God wants us to long to be with Him in heaven. God wants us to long to be with Him in heaven. I hope you will see that from the text as we look at it today. But I feel like before we look at the text, we need to kind of quickly, very quickly, get a context uh, perspective here. Revelation 21 contains for us here the Bible's most exhaustive description of this new heaven and new earth. We also get a a picture here of the capital city of heaven, which is called the New Jerusalem. But before we read that, you need to understand what happens before that. I feel like this is helpful. So I'm giving you a little timeline on the screen here, which kind of gives you a, a lot of stuff. So sorry about the busyness there, but it is helpful nonetheless. So if you read in your Bible here in Revelation, though, you will find that Jesus comes back at the end of that seven-year tribulation. You can read about that there in Revelation six through nineteen. So, so those of you horse lovers love you, you love this is one of your favorite verses in the Bible. You know, the, the armies of Jesus, which are the believers, coming back on the white horses. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. I know that the horse is going to be perfect, and King Jesus is leading me, and I'm going to be perfect. So I'm not concerned about falling off at that point. I'm really looking forward to that. But, but Jesus comes back, and he just slaughters all his enemies there in chapter 19, what, what's typically called the Battle of Armageddon. And then in, we enter into chapter 20 there, this 1,000-earthly-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. Well, that that eventually comes to an end, obviously, there in chapter 20. And then you'll see also at the end of chapter 20 this great white throne judgment where God sentences Satan, finally, He's he's dealt with once and for all, thrown into the lake of fire, along with all unbelievers who've never put their faith in Christ. And then chapter twenty-one here, we have this, this new heaven and new earth. Well, that's because it says the, the whole universe has been dissolved. There in chapter twenty-one, verse one. God's done away with the old to bring in the the new, and so, in a sense, I do believe in global warming. Not like most scientists, though. I believe in God-made global warming as uh, what happens there, and this whole universe is going to be dissolved. It is a God-made global warming, universal warming. And then we see that everything's going to be, we, as we know, will be made perfect. So with that very quick introduction there, we, we come to our passage today, but we need to understand and examine this process by which this current universe you and I live in is destroyed, and then all things are made new. We uh, saw when we studied 2 Peter chapter 3 that Peter addressed this very issue. In verse 7, he says that the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But the day of the Lord would come like a thief, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, that kind of gets us caught up here to Revelation chapter 21. So, look here in Revelation 21. Let's read about the new heaven and the new earth. Starting in verse 1. These are the words of the living God. And he says, as he God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Then He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There are six features that I want you to take notice here in this particular text of the final and eternal heaven, which is called the new heaven and the new earth. So there are six features we'll look at quickly. Number one, notice the appearance of the new heaven and the new earth, at least what what little information we have in verse 1. First of all, we, we can notice that God says it is a new heaven and a new earth. New there, by the way, has nothing to do with chronology or time. It, it, it is a qualitative word. It's new in quality. So the new heaven and the new earth is something that is brand new. It's not a renovation. Okay, It's not, it's not like you see those shows on HGTV where they take an old house and you know they might rip the jib board off and sand the floor and put some new paint on the wall. No, that, that that is not what we're talking about here. It's brand new, something never before seen. It's called burn down the old house and build a totally new one, is what we're talking about here. All right, that's the difference. So notice first that God has to create everything new. Why? Because the first heaven and the earth are gone, it says in verse one. He gets rid of the old, brings in the new. And he, well, then why did he dissolve the old heaven and, he- and the old earth here? Well, he has to, because our present earth we live on is cursed by sin. Read Genesis 3. You can read Romans chapter 8, for example, here, where it says in verse 19 For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And it continues that way. And will continue that way until this verse right here, when God makes a new heaven and a new earth. So what are the new heaven and the new earth going to be like? Well, we get a hint of that here in verse 1. Very different from our present earth. Notice there is going to be no more sea. That's a big change because if you look at this picture of our present earth, you know that approximately 75% of our current earth is made out of water. So mostly blue when you look at it from outer space. And, of course, all life is dependent on water for survival. Even you, as well, are made uh, with a lot of water. And so we see there's going to be some drastic changes here. Apparently, a believer's glorified body itself is going to be different. Apparently, you're not going to require water. Human beings aren't going to require water. Uh, Even your own blood, apparently, is made out of 90% water. Your flesh and your body and your muscles made of roughly 65% water. You're made out of a lot of water. But it says here there will no longer be any sea. Why does God say that? I can't tell you all the reasons for that. <laughs> okay, But so that's what it says. That's the, if you see the appearance of the new heaven and the new earth, it is clearly going to be very, very different. Heaven also has a capital that's described here in verse 2. So let's look at this, the capital of the new heaven and the new earth. And so John moves to the capital city here of the eternal state. And there's no reason to doubt, by the way, that the holy city is a real, actual city. Uh, In fact, you can read much more about it. Continue reading there in chapter 21. Uh, It gives some very detailed description about the capital city of heaven, the new Jerusalem. It mentions the foundation, gates, you know, it's square, how how long it is, how wide it is. You know, all those various details of it are all mentioned there in the Scriptures. So there's a lot of dimensions, uh, even in verse 16, for example. I don't think that's an accident that God would, would mention that. In verse 16, the city lies four squares, length the same as its width. He's measured the city with a rod. 12,000 stadia its length and width and height are equal anyway and then he gives even how thick are the walls so forth a lot of a lot of information there if it's not real why would god do that that doesn't make any sense so the new jerusalem notice it here the, the capital city of heaven's called the holy city god likes that word holy he he's holy his word is holy he wants his people to be holy to be unique and distinct And so this concept of of holiness here is important. And it it, it just incorporates everything, the relationships, activities, the responsibilities, uh, a lot of things. But unlike the evil cities that we currently live in, the perfect people here in the New Jerusalem are going to live and work together in perfect harmony. Notice where the city comes from. Did you see where it comes from? Where is it right now? Well, it comes down from heaven, so it must be in heaven right now. So the implication here is then that heaven, or sorry, the new Jerusalem, this capital city, already then exists. But when God creates a new heaven and a new earth, the new Jerusalem is going to descend, it says, into the very midst of the new earth. It's going to serve as a dwelling place for the redeemed, for for the Christians, for those who are the Bride of Christ, and it will be for all eternity. And so notice the beautiful picture of of a bride. It contains the bride here. and, And therefore, it's going to take on the character of the bride. And this moment here is that final stage, if you will, of the marriage ceremony. And the final stage is corresponding here to the eternal state. And John saw the bride here adorned for her husband. Who's her husband? Jesus Christ. Why? Well, this is the time for the consummation. And we see the the words there, adorned. She's adorned. The word adorned means to order, to arrange. The bride, in other words, become appropriately ordered, appropriately arranged in all of her beauty for this moment that God has been building toward by the way, at this point here in, in the book of Revelation, the bride concept we, we typically associate with the church, uh, with this, this group of people, all believers, is going to expand. You, some, some people wonder, well, what about the Old Testament saints? All right, Well, what happens to them? Are they somehow left outside this? No, they're not. Because the Old Testament saints, all those people you read about, like Abraham and David, for example, They're incorporated here too. They're not left out, alright? They're they're part of this beautiful bride we're reading about. We're going to be with them as well in this capital city of heaven for all eternity. What is the supreme reality of the new heaven and the new earth? Well, that's verse 3. Because verse 3 says, John John says, "I, I I heard this loud voice coming from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So, fill in the blank, my friends. The answer you give will be quite revealing. It will tell you a lot about yourself. So here's the blank. The supreme glory and joy of heaven is blank. What do you put in that blank? Not what should you put in the blank, because we just read what should go in the blank. But what would you put in that blank, having not read verse 3? Well, there's all kinds of things that many of us have put there, might put there. But as you can see in verse 3, the proper answer is the person of God. God is the appropriate answer. We see this... Unknown, loud voice making this very important announcement here. Probably coming from an angel. Angels typically are God's messengers. So what's the important announcement? That God is with man. He's dwelling with them. They're going to be His people. God Himself will be with them as their God. We see this imagery of God tabernacling with His people. If you see that word tabernacle, it it can mean a a tent, a a dwelling place. God's saying, I'm going to pitch my tent among my people. So as you set up your tent, you can kind of picture God setting up His tent. Not that He needs one, but just picture that image. He's dwelling there. He's not far off. He's not distant. He's not in the Holy of Holies anymore distant from his people he's right there with them and so the amazing reality of matthew 5 verse 8 is real and it has come to pass it says that the pure in heart shall see god that's the only way you're going to see god to be pure in heart of course you can't do that on your own god has to do that work in you and so we see that his presence here is going to permeate heaven it, it, he's not going to just be confined to one space. And so this wonderful truth, my friend, should be so mind-boggling that the heavenly voice here has to repeat it several different ways for us. To, how do we understand this? It's, especially for an Israelite who, the only way they could picture God was in that one little confined room called the Holy of Holies. So what was it going to be like to live in God's glorious presence in heaven? Let's just think about this. A few things here from Scripture. Number one, believers or Christians will enjoy fellowship with God. So the imperfect, sin-hindered fellowship that you and I enjoy now with God, well, that's going to be done away with, because sin's done away with. Believers are going to be with God in a way that is now going to be complete. It's going to be full. It's going to be an unlimited access, unhindered access to God. At the moment, it's limited. It's, it's hindered by our, our own sin. But it's going to be one day full, complete, and unlimited. Praise God for that. Number two, believers will see God as He is. You'll actually see Him, and you won't be consumed. For example, in 1 John 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Amen. So there's the unveiled view of God. It's coming, my friends. And it is possible, but it's not possible for mortal man and a mortal woman. Even the saints in glory will not be able to fully comprehend an infinite, incomprehensible, majestic God. And so, is it any wonder the Apostle Paul would say, make statements in Philippians like, My desire is to depart and to be with God, but it, that is far better for me. Is it any wonder he says that? Of course. You understand what heaven is like, what God is like? That's the natural response. Is it any wonder that a blind hymn writer by the name of Fanny Crosby would understand the supreme reality of heaven is God? She knew when she got there she would see Him as He is. And so she wrote, My Savior, first of all, beautiful words. She says, When my life's work is ended and I cross the swelling tide. When the bright and glorious morning I shall see. I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side. And His smile will be the first to welcome me. Through the gate to the city in a robe of spotless white. He will lead me where no tears will ever fall. In the glad song of ages, I shall mingle with delight. But I long to meet my Savior first of all. Well, what's it going to be like to be in God's glorious presence in heaven? Number three, believers will worship God. Every glimpse of heaven as you read through the book of Revelation is revealing all the redeemed, the the bought ones by Jesus here, and including the angels. What are they doing? What do we see them doing in this book? They're worshiping God. And no, that is not boring. (laughs) In fact, look what Revelation 19, verse 4 says. I'll just give you one example. Verse 4 of Revelation 19. It says the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Well, that's just one of the many pictures in Revelation where they are worshiping God. The appropriate response to the one who is worthy of worship. And number four... Believers are going to serve God. Believers are going to serve God. Look at chapter 22, verse 3, for example. It says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Revelation 7 another interesting passage verse 15 it says there that the saints revelation 7 verse 15 look what it says the saints in heaven serve god day and night in his temple we see number five what are what are believers doing in heaven before god's glorious presence we see the lord then will serve believers Yes, the Lord will serve believers. If you don't believe me, look at this teaching that give, Jesus gives in in story form in Luke chapter 12. Look at Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Let's start reading verse 35. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds him awake, blessed are those servants. But know this that if the master of the house had known in what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man, or sorry, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Did you notice the master there? We find him serving his. Servants. So Jesus here is picturing himself as this wealthy nobleman, this Lord who returns to his estate after he's gone on some long trip somewhere and he finds his servants ministering faithfully here in his absence. And so what does he do? He rewards them. How does he do that though? He rewards them by taking the role of a servant, he prepares a feast. For them and feeds them this wonderful feast and so that's the way it is for believers as well in heaven the picture of it here well there are some changes in the new heaven and the new earth we can read about in verses four through six so heaven's going to be so different from this present earth we live in that to describe it Poor old uh, the Apostle John here, he's, oh yes, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but how does he do this? Notice he uses negatives. He uses negatives to describe these changes in the new heaven and the new earth. So what are these changes? Number one, we see in verse 4, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now some people imagine this to be People crying in heaven because they have had to face their record of sins before the holy God. By the way, there is no such record. Yes, there is a book of life. It has your name in it, but the book of life doesn't have a whole list of your sins in it. Okay? There is no such thing. Because in Romans 8, verse 1, it says, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The judgment seat of Christ is a time of reward, not, not condemnation. So God doesn't have this huge screen in heaven showing all your sins, all your evil thoughts that you've ever done. You know, all the bad things you've watched on your computer. You know, all the bad things you've read, all the inappropriate things you've done. No, everybody in heaven is not going to see that on the massive screen. Like I've heard preached before not going to happen. Jesus has dealt with your sin, past, present, and future. You will be rewarded for what you have done in the body. Read Romans, read Corinthians. And so if you just waste your life, you got a bunch of worthless stuff to show at the end, like wood, hay, and stubble, it's going to be burned up. But if your life is like those precious stones, like gold, silver, and other precious stones and so forth, when it is tested and revealed in the fire, God's going to know who you are and what you need to be rewarded for. But what this verse tells us here is that there's an absence of anything to be sorry about. You don't need to be sad in heaven. There are no disappointments in heaven. There's no pain, no tears. There's no such thing as a misfortune. There's no nothing to cry about. There's no regrets. No tears for any reason whatsoever. That's the point God's making. So he's, he's dealt with all that stuff. That's why there is no tears coming from our eyes. Number two, there's no, no longer any death. Well, that's clearly different from what we experience now. No more death. Because God's dealt with this enemy 1 Corinthians 15 says, said, says death is swallowed up in victory. Re- look at Revelation 20, verse 10 and, and 14. It says that death itself is cast into the lake of fire. It's done away with. Gone. No more death. Even for unbelievers, there will be no more death. Just eternity. And number three. There will there will not be any mourning or sorrow nor crying in heaven. Now, when you see the word mourning, that's more of an inward thing. Sorrow is referring to what, how you feel inwardly. You're crying, obviously. Well, that's, you know, that's, you know, that's the wet part coming out of you, showing what's going on the inside of you, right? Uh, it's, it's the outward part. God's saying, I'm going to deal with both of them. They're all going to be gone. Why? Well, because of Jesus. Jesus dealt with your sorrow. Remember he said he would in Isaiah chapter 53? Here it is, in case you don't remember. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says "A he, Jesus, was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our what? He's even carried our sorrows. That inner grief that causes us to cry on the outside. And so he was smitten by God and afflicted. So Jesus has dealt even with your sorrows. So my friends, number four, we see there's going to be no more pain. It says here, no more pain for the former things have passed away. Praise God. Whatever pain you're feeling, <laughs> or you have felt in the past, you will never feel it again. Never feel it again. Just, just meditate on that. <laughs> As somebody's experienced a lot of pain in my life, I look forward to that day. But the Bible also tells us here about the residents. In other words, who, who gets to live here? Who's living in the new heaven and the new earth? Well, that's verses 6 and 7. We've seen Jesus described here at the beginning of verse 6 as the Alpha and the Omega. That just means He's the beginning and the end. So there's two descriptive phrases here reveal who live in the new heaven and the new earth. Notice what the Bible says. Interesting way of putting this. We see, first of all, the heaven belongs to the thirsty. Wait a minute. We we just read earlier there's, there's no water, no sea. Uh, we don 't need to drink in heaven, so heaven belongs to the thirsty. What's that all about? Well, well, it says to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payments. so it 's to the thirsty. That phrase there signifies those who recognize something about themselves that's lacking. Have you ever done that? you ever recognize your desperate need? Your spiritual need? You are spiritually empty without God? The Bible asks the question, Do Jesus asked the question when He preached His sermon on the mount in Matthew 5, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? And so those who enter heaven are those who are dissatisfied with their hopeless, lost condition. And then you must put that off and say, I need something that's going to quench my thirst, crave for God's righteousness with every part of your being. That's the ones who go to heaven. As the psalmist put it in Psalm 42, as a deer longs for flowing streams, so longs my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before Him? That's the appropriate response for someone who goes to heaven so the promise to earnest seekers is that their thirst is going to be satisfied. Jesus, what did he say? He said, I am the living water. Drink of me, right? Drink of me. Look at this conversation he had with the Samaritan woman in John 4. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He's, he's looking at the physical water when he says that. But then Jesus talks about Himself. He says, whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the water in those passages there is symbolizing this eternal life Jesus just mentions. So those who are thirsty for and passionately seeking salvation are ones who are going to receive it. If you don't want it, you're not going to get it. You reject Jesus, the living water. You know what John 3.18 says? We know verse 16 very well, but 318 says if you don't believe in Jesus, you're condemned already. You get what you deserve. So heaven belongs to the thirsty, and number two, we see the residence of heaven here. It, it, is, it also belongs to the overcomer. Overcomer is one who's exercising saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about an overcomer because look what it says in verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. We're talking about a conqueror, an overcomer. We see this, this, this imagery, this language used elsewhere. For example, in 1 John 5 verse 4 it says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What's the victory? Notice what it says. Our faith. Our faith. So who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, the object of your faith there, notice, is Jesus. So it's not faith in in you or anything else. It has to be faith in God alone. So the promise here to the overcomer, though, is that he or she is going to inherit these things. They're going to obtain an inheritance. Now, I love the way Peter put it. Your inheritance, my friends, is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it's reserved in heaven for you. So The most wonderful promise to the one here who overcomes is God's promise here in verse 7. Look what God says in verse 7. He says, I will be his God. And equally amazing is God's promise here in verse 7 that the one who overcomes will be my son. That's God's promise. God says, you're going to be his son. So, my friends, only in heaven will this inheritance and this adoption be fully realized. Fully realized. But... God is not a universalist. Not all people eventually make it to heaven. And he gives us some bad news here, because there are some who do not make it to heaven, and he tells us very plainly and clearly who they are in verse 8. He mentions some things about them. So let me just quickly point them out. John's concluding here is his overview with a very serious and solemn warning. He shows us there are some excluded. There are some who are outcast of heaven, who don't get into his his eternal presence, do not receive his blessings there in heaven. First of all, he says the cowardly. That's an interesting way to start off. These are people who lack endurance. These are the ones who fall away from their faith when they are challenged by People or things, and life doesn't go the way they want it to, and so their faith is clearly shown to be not genuine. People, or sorry, Jesus described these very people in the parable of the soils. Look what he said about these very people here, the cowardly, these who lack endurance, in Matthew 13, verse 20 says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So the person shows he was never a real believer to start with. They're cowardly. They lack endurance. And so they fall away when their faith is challenged. Number two, you see the faithless are mentioned here as the outcast of the new heaven and the new earth. The faithless here, in other words, are those who lack saving faith. Everybody has faith in something. so We're talking about people who are lacking saving faith in Christ. They're the ones who don't make it to heaven. The faith must be in the right object. It has to be in the object of Christ. The Bible also mentions these detestable people. That means they're vile, polluted. These are people wholly into their evil. It is as Apostle John put it in 1 John, habitually into their sin. We're all sinners, so it can't refer to everybody. So these are people wholly into the evil. They're, these are murderers. It says here, you know what those are, people who are sexually immoral, sorcerers. And that one may may throw you off a little. Uh, a sorcerer comes from an English, uh, an interesting Greek word, sorry, called pharmakos. We of course get the English word pharmacy. Now, please don't go in the pharmacy and call them sorcerers, all right? That's not the point here, all right? But uh, we do get the English word pharmacy and pharmaceuticals from the Greek word here. The idea is this. Sorcery would be included in this. It's people who use the, the mind-altering drugs, particularly in, in occult religions, uh, to do their, whatever they do in those occult religions. All right, That's specifically what it's talking about here when you see the word sorcerers. And then it goes on to just label those who don't love God with all their heart, the idolaters. And then it ends with liars. So here's the point. Those whose lives are characterized by these kinds of things are giving evidence to something. You're revealing what's inside you, who you are. These people aren't saved. That's the point. They don't love God. They love themselves. And so, therefore, they never enter into the heavenly city. But on the contrary here, their their part we see here is what? What happens to them? Look at verse 8. At the end of verse 8, it says, "...their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death." So their part's going to be in the lake of fire. In contrast to the Christian's, in contrast to their eternal bliss, their suffering is going to be an eternal torment. And so the new heaven and the new earth awaits the believers. The final hell awaits these resurrected unbelievers. For believers, it's going to be a universe of eternal happiness. But for the unbeliever, it's going to be a terrifying place of unbearable torment. It is going to be a place of unrelieved misery and pain and suffering. And so, my friends... I don't want you to go there to eternal death, lake of fire. So you need to recognize your faith lies in something. You do have an object of your faith. The question is, who is it in? So you have a choice to make in this life, and it's going to determine which of those two realms you will live forever. Where does your belief, your trust, your faith lie? And So, my prayer for you, my friends, and for everyone we come in contact with, that God would enable you and and enable others to make the right choice, that their faith would be put in the Savior, into Jesus Christ, God's Son, who paid the price for your sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We're thankful for this beautiful picture. Yes, it seems so limited, but we're thankful for the revelation you have given to us of the eternal home we call heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, for this capital city we call the new Jerusalem here. We long to be there. Give us more of a longing to be there, to be because it's predominantly about You and not what we get. May we not be like the child that opens the gift and forgets the giver and we play with the box and we play with the toy and we never say thank You. But May we be eternally grateful for You and love You with all of our hearts, our entire being. May we look forward to this day and our hearts be be there with you, because that's where our treasure is, after all. May our affections be set on things above and not on the earth. So open our eyes to heaven. May we see it as a real place, the place where all believers have their citizenship. It is a place where we will live with you for all eternity, with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So may we... See it as real, may we long for it, may we live for you with our entire being. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.